Welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. You're listening to Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. The revision of the IMO's strategy on reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from ships at the Marine Environment Protection Committee in July very much put shipping in the spotlight. Now we've all had time to digest the revised strategy, we'll be focusing on its implications for the industry in this episode of the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. To give further insight into what was decided at MEPC 80 and how this will affect shipping, I am delighted to say we are joined by Joseph Gardamel, Regulatory Affairs Manager for Leading Classification Society, ABS. You will be hearing from Joseph about some of the key changes and how ABS can help you prepare for these and ensure compliance. Joseph, welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. Hello, Marcus. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Great. Thanks so much for taking the time, Joseph, to talk to our listeners today about this very important topic. To sort of start things off, MBPC80, as I just said in the intro there, was very keenly watched by huge numbers of parties from both inside and outside the industry. How much of a change was there to the ambitions of the IMO GH3 strategy to what we had previously? Going into MEPC 80, the adoption of the IMO's revised GHG strategy was something that I think pretty much everyone expected, and yet pretty much everyone was also amazed by the outcome as well. To think that shipping one day would have net zero GHG emissions, and knowing that within 30 years, within the span of one generation of marine professionals, ships will likely be equipped and operated very differently than they are today. What new equipment is going to become necessary? Things that we don't have standards for yet, and that no one is trained to service. What might hulls look like 30 years from now? But in terms of the change of targets in the revised GHG strategy, the IMOs really decided to pick up the pace in reducing emissions. All compared to 2008 levels, a 20% reduction in total emissions by 2030, 70% by 2040, and net zero emissions by 2050. So basically, when you look at the target points, the IMO has said, we're going to take that initial strategy we adopted before with the target of 50% reduction in GHG emissions, get that done about 15 years earlier than we originally planned, and then keep going until we reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions. But I also have to say, to me, what was just as interesting as the change in the level of ambition for GHG reduction was the change in sentiment that's taken place over the past five years at the IMO. See, I was at MEPC back in 2018 when the initial strategy was adopted, and then again in 2023 for the revised strategy. And if you could watch those two side by side, the change in the tone of discourse is really something remarkable, I think. Back in 2018, there was a general tone of, well, fear and some hesitancy. You, of course, had the small island developing states urging the IMO to support the Paris Agreement because they believed their future would be at stake. There were many developing nations that were fearful of having their economic growth hampered by costs associated with emission reduction. And there were developed nations that didn't want to be subject to clear emissions reduction targets until the means of achieving those targets were also clear. And now we fast forward five years. And what I heard in the voices at the IMO was definitely not fear, it was resolve. It was a belief that not only would the increased level of ambition in the GHG strategy be necessary, but also attainable. So something's clearly changed in the past five years. Maybe it's become more clear that the entire industry has room to improve with operational efficiencies. Maybe it's the supply chains for alternative fuels that are beginning to take shape. 
or maybe it's some of the technologies that are beginning to emerge and it all adds up to a kind of roadmap that leads to 2050. But the change from fear and hesitancy to commitment to me was very apparent at MEPC. That change in tone, that's quite fascinating, actually, because I don't think that was something that necessarily comes through from just reading reports. So getting that sort of first-hand idea of what it was like and how it's changed over those years is really fascinating. Now, you talked about that change, and obviously we've got the new targets. So how much more work will be required from ship owners to reach this new level of ambition? Uh, Well, I would say more than this taking more work, what it will take is more planning and more consistency in making emissions reduction a priority in ship operations. The carbon intensity indicator has been established as a kind of dial to turn in the direction of lowering emissions over time. But ship owners can't be passive and wait to receive their CII rating once per year. They need to be active throughout the year in monitoring and projecting what their CII rating will be and assessing each voyage to identify which operational efficiency measures make sense, whether that might be speed or routing optimization, or maybe outfitting vessels with an ability to bring on board supplementary wind propulsion for certain charters, and other things like that to consider. But even with all of this planning and consistency, no one can deny the challenge that lies ahead of us all. The new long-term goal of net zero GHG emissions by 2050 is, of course, the the mountain that everyone in the maritime industry will be climbing together. (laughs) I think it's generally agreed that without new fuels and new energy sources to transition the global fleet into, the 2050 goal is unlikely to be realized. But while those new energy sources and new technologies take shape, there are other operational efficiencies that can be leveraged to keep the momentum moving in the right direction. You say there's that ultimate goal of uh, net zero by 2050, and also there were a number of waypoints within that. One of those was a 40% reduction in carbon intensity by 2030. How much uh, more onerous is that going to comply with than what ship owners are doing right now? Yeah, so the good news with the 2030 target on carbon intensity is that the industry as a, as a whole seems to have already made good progress towards this target in the past several years. And it's as if just the deliberations on carbon intensity measures have made everyone become more mindful of the importance of efficiency and the need to make it a priority. From the fourth IMO GHG study that was done back in 2020, it was a, a study of the period from 2012 to 2018. The overall carbon intensity averaged across international shipping was actually improved by almost 30% compared to the 2008 levels. But that study also confirmed that the pace of this improvement had slowed significantly in the later years, as if all of the easy victories for energy efficiency had been tapped out. To see those carbon intensity improvements continue, I think we're really going to need to see efficiency planning and fuel conservation planning become part of the planning for every voyage, whether that involves slow steaming or speed and trim optimization. And ports are going to have to step up and help ships to operate more efficiently by reducing time in port or at anchorage. And a third aspect that is a bit less predictable, but still something that we do see coming towards us on the horizon is the increased uptake in drop-in biofuels. So again, the good news, the optimistic view of 2030 is that reductions in carbon intensity compared to 2008 have already been made, and the methods to continue this winning trend are becoming more apparent, and now they just need to become a priority. 
So they very much have to just become, as I think as you said, a part of every voyage planning and ensuring that you meet those. And it's good to know that we're at least part of the way there. If you'd like to learn more about the IMO's GHG strategy, there is a link in the show notes to a briefing by ABS on MEPC 80. There was also an update of zero or near zero GHG emission technology fuels energy sources to be at least 5% of those energy sources with an ambition of 10% by 2030. Is shipping in place to meet those requirements? So the emergence of zero and near zero GHG emission fuels and technologies, that may be the biggest unknown in all of this. Everyone knows that the 2050 goals won't be achieved without them, but a clear pathway to bring the supply to scale hasn't presented itself yet. We do know what are some of the early frontrunners for these near zero GHG fuels, green hydrogen, green methanol, green ammonia. And following well-to-wake principles, we know it isn't just the fuel itself, but also how it's produced that allows it to be considered a near-zero GHG emission fuel. Designers are already developing the vessels that will run on these fuels, but it's their supply and wide availability that needs to become apparent. I've seen one approximation that this metric of 5% of energy used by international shipping is the equivalent of 15 million tons of heavy fuel oil. So that is definitely not an insignificant amount. But I think that the supply of these new fuels, as it gets established, certain vessel types will be better suited to be the early movers for the transition. And the transition of domestic shipping into these new fuels as well will also contribute significantly. And I think that would put shipping on its way to meeting that target. That, that figure of 15 million tons equivalent is, I mean, that's, that's quite a serious number, isn't it? Now, obviously, that's the fuel side, which owners I guess can't do that much about, but how would ABS recommend and help the industry meet these new requirements? At this stage, keeping up with the required fuel consumption reporting and maintaining CII performance will be key elements for everyone, as the IMO DCS reporting will inform the IMO on the industry's overall carbon intensity performance, and the CII will again be the dial that's adjusted over time to steer the industry towards decarbonization. And for both of these, planning far in advance is definitely going to lead to the best outcomes. For ABS's role in this, our approach to supporting industry is carried out in layers. Our regulatory affairs department, where I'm stationed, monitors all of the developments taking place at the IMO and the reasonings behind them, and provides early information and guidance for compliance to get things moving in the right direction. We also work to keep our engineers and surveyors informed on these emerging topics, because our clients globally are having these conversations every day with our frontline staff. And for companies that are looking to develop their plans for decarbonization on a deeper level, our global sustainability team provides some very thorough services that help ship owners improve their efficient operation in their fleet, services like GHG inventory and carbon accounting, CII benchmarking and forecasting, and also uh, simulation-based energy efficiency evaluations. For owners and operators getting an assessment outside of your organization, it can be a good exercise in examining your vessel operations holistically, and it might also give some insights into what others in industry are doing to similarly address these requirements. Okay, so there's actually quite a lot of different things for ship owners to be doing there, and I think some of these are things that they are doing already. If we look at 
the various checkpoints that there are, and we consider well-to-wake emissions of fuels. How much impact would this have on fuel choice? Uh, Yes, it will be an important point to consider going forward. So far, the short-term measures and IMODCS have been accounting only the tank-to-wake CO2 emissions, but considering the well-to-wake emissions of fuels is the only way to fairly compare different fuels and understand their true emissions footprint. For instance, methanol produced from natural gas, termed gray methanol, has a well-to-tank GHG intensity of about 30 gram CO2 equivalent per megajoule, whereas gray ammonia, it's about 120 gram CO2 equivalent per megajoule. And both of these fuels have very low tank-to-wake emissions, but on the well-to-wake basis, their GHG effect is even worse than that of fossil fuels because of the method of producing them from natural gas. (laughs) But looking forward, we now have the fuel lifecycle guidelines adopted at MEPC-80 to help standardize how different fuels can be compared. And with the ongoing development of the guidelines, it's expected that at least the midterm measures, uh, which will include both a technical and an economic aspect, those will account for emissions on a well-to-wake level. And also, uh, when the short-term measures are reconsidered at the IMO in 2026, Revisions to those might include not only the addition of methane and nitrous oxide into the accounting, but also the well-to-wake fuel performance. I think that's very interesting, actually, and very pertinent, because I think there's this tendency to think if what comes out the funnel is clean, the fuel is clean, but not necessarily the case, very much as you pointed out with methanol there. Now, as we look ahead, quite a number of these mid-term measures that were detailed at IMO actually require further development. So there's still some, you know, some some amount of uncertainty there. How should shipping prepare in the meantime? A key phrase that was said several times during the week at MEPC-80 was the concept of creating regulatory certainty. And this was the term, term used. And it's the idea that we may not know exactly what the regulations on GHG emissions will be 10 years from now or 20 years from now. But the IMO is working to create regulatory certainty with regard to where the regulations are headed. And in doing this, the IMO is trying to assure industry that the efforts of early movers will not be in vain and may create opportunities for companies to build a reputation as being among those who have mastered this new way of viewing shipping. But, uh, but a part of this regulatory certainty is their voicing of a clear intention that the basket of midterm measures for GHG reduction will include a technical aspect as well as an economic aspect. The current schedule is for the finalization of this basket of midterm measures at MEPC 81, which is spring of next year, followed by approval at MEPC 83 the following spring, and then entry into force in 2027. The technical measure in, in this basket of measures is shaping up to be a greenhouse gas fuel standard to limit the GHG intensity of fuels that ships can use. And the economic measure is still undergoing a lot of debate with several different possible outcomes. Uh, But to to gain experience in operating under an emission regime with an economic component, the immediate example right now is the EU emissions trading system. For the EU ETS, the logging of emissions from voyages to and from the EU is about to begin in January. And the first round of utilizing emissions credits under the EU ETS will take place in 2025. Um, Now, the IMO's economic measures could end up looking very different, but this is at least one opportunity to gain some field experience 
in working under such a, a regulatory system with these economic implications. Yes, I think that regulatory certainty is going to be very important, and I'm sure it's something that we're all going to be watching very closely. And I think it'd be great to come back and talk to you at a later date, a bit as we see those measures being developed. I'd just like to thank you, Joseph, for taking the time to join us today on the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. No problem. It's a pleasure and happy to come back later on. <laughs> thank you, Joseph. And thank you for giving our listeners an insight into ABS's views on this important topic. That is all we have time for on this episode of the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. And thank you for listening. <laughs>